Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Okay, my name is Mabumo. I'm studying uh, geology at uh, Last week, uh, I think it was last week, Tuesday, we were involved with clashes with the police. They came here using hippos, and no, it was at first it was just the not, not a violent protest. Yeah, but after we wanted to have a mass meeting here at the Solomon Matlangu house, so the police said uh, to the to the house, so they started displacing us using stun grenades uh, and tear gas. We ran away, you know, the whole campus, yeah, from Pram, then we went to Hilbert, there were students who were arrested, we went there to get them, we came back, it was violent on campus. I inhaled the tear gas, yeah your face, your eyes tensed, if you have asthma, it can kill you, because you run out of breath. In this week's episode, we think about how protests at universities fit into the bigger landscape of protest in South Africa. We also explore how protests are policed and regulated, and what makes them turn violent. As well as this, we think about the role that having police on campus has played in the current wave of student protests that we're seeing across the country at the moment. Our guest is Professor Jane Duncan. Jane is a professor of journalism at the University of Johannesburg. Before that, she was Highway Africa Chair of Media and Information Society at the School of Journalism and Media Studies at the university currently known as Rhodes. Jane is a prominent media activist and former executive director of the Freedom of Expression Institute. She has published widely on the subject of media and democracy in South Africa and is the author, most recently, of the book Protest Nation, published by UKZN Press and out this year. A very warm welcome to Professor Jane Duncan. Thank you for making time to talk to us on the podcast today. My first question for you is to ask you, as a, a scholar who has researched protest and researched the ways in which protests are covered in the media and policed, could you put into context for us how student protests that we're seeing now fit into the bigger picture of protests and social movements in South Africa? Well, I think it's important for us to understand protests as being cyclical. And I think once we start to understand uh, protests as cycles, we can then start to analyse the chain of cause and effect that gives rise to specific incidents like violence in protests, for instance. And I think also, if we understand how protest cycles have unfolded in South African society more broadly, then I think we can also place the South African student protests within that particular context. And I think what we've seen in South African protest cultures, particularly since the early 2000s, is a rise in a radicalization of protests that have been taking place. 
But in addition to that, there are certain things that radicalize protest action. And this has happened in broader society, and I think it's happening in student protests as well. State non-responsiveness radicalizes protests. What we've often found in relation to community protests, especially industrial protests less so, is that municipalities often fail to respond to the demands of protests, particularly when it comes to community protests. And the species of protest I think is particularly noteworthy because they are often against the very municipalities that are regulating gatherings. So often the municipalities are themselves conflicted in how they're regulating these gatherings and often use the Regulation of Gatherings Act as a censorship device in order to stifle the voices of protesters. But what we often tend to find is that protest organisations or organisations engage in protest action often tend to start out using more formalised channels of engagement. So the ward committees, for instance, or the attempt to raise grievances in visors or any other platform or forum that allows them an opportunity to raise those particular grievances in a formalised kind of fashion. And then having exhausted those formalised platforms, um, often only at that stage do people take to the streets. Now, what we also find in relation to protests when they happen is that often the issues that gave rise to those protests are ignored by the authorities that they're directed against. Or alternatively, the municipalities attempt to stifle those protests using a myriad excuses, misreadings of the Regulation of Gatherings Act, and also um, many prohibit uh, gatherings on grounds that aren't recognised by the Regulation of Gatherings Act. So in other words, grounds that aren't either lawful nor constitutional. And that enrages people because it starts to develop what the social movement theorists have termed injustice frames around the actions of the state. If the police are called out too soon, if there's over-policing of protests, or if the issues that uh, protesters are raising aren't taken seriously, sufficiently, or there's an attempt on the part of the authorities to stifle those voices, then those are often the factors that radicalise protests and make protesters take protest actions to another level entirely. We tend to find this particularly with community protests because they are more in the firing line, if you like, of prohibitions by municipalities and the police. And often community protesters now just simply don't even bother with the Regulation of Gatherings Act because they say to themselves, if the state itself acts illegally, if the law itself is lawless, then we've got sufficient justification to take to the streets anyway and, and make our voices heard. What we've seen increasingly in different parts of the country where protests have been over-regulated and effectively censored is that people take to the streets in any event because the underlying grievances haven't been addressed. And then because the police consider these to be so-called unlawful protests or unrest-related protests, they then think that they've got grounds to attack those protests and to disperse them forcefully. So just to clarify these points a little further, you were talking here about protests that happen in communities around the country. Could you give us a little more insight into what kinds of issues specifically those communities are unhappy about and protesting about? just so that we can get a little more, kind of fill out the picture of, of the underlying causes and motivations for their complaints and protests. There's a diversity of grievances. It's important not just simply to reduce them to issues of service delivery. The largest protesters by far in the broader protest space are industrial. 
So generally, protests are related in, in that space, are related to wages and issues related to working conditions more generally. But increasingly, we've seen community protests starting to rival, if not outnumber, industrial protests in certain areas. And there, there's a range of issues. So from 2011 onwards, there have been ongoing protests taking place around issues of public participation, where more people are, are complaining about the fact that the ANC in the 20, 2011 local government elections imposed councillors on them that many communities weren't happy with. So many people felt that they were being insufficiently or inappropriately represented. So public participation issues, I think, are key drivers. Service delivery, obviously, is a key driver. And particularly water. I've looked quite closely at protests that have taken place from 2009 to 2013 in the Mpumalanga province. And water has been a huge driver of protests there. And spontaneous protests, especially. And we must bear in mind that spontaneous protests you can actually argue that your, your, your protest was spontaneous and you didn't notify the municipality of your protest and for that to be recognised as a legitimate defence in terms of the Regulation of Gang Lands Act. So often what has happened is that people have woken up early in the morning to go to work and discovered that there's no water, it's been cut off. And there have been massive problems with highly erratic water supply in various parts of the province. And people have often taken to the streets then. Sometimes these protests have gone up to between 1,500 to 2,000 people. And it's quite interesting to see that these kinds of protests, because I've looked at the municipal records around who's been notified of protests in different municipalities. A number of the Mpumalanga municipalities, I can't see many protests being recorded around water. Yet there are many, many protests in the, in the police records that have happened about water. So what that tells us is that people who are taking to the streets around issues relating to water, for instance, aren't necessarily informing the municipality about these issues. And I think for one thing, because people just take to the streets spontaneously, but also people have lost trust in the process of notification that is required by the Regulation of Gatherings Act. The people who are users of the Act, far more than community organisations, are NGOs and trade unions. They tend to be far more locked into consensual forms of conflict management and because of that, I think, tend to place a lot more trust in the whole Regulation of Gatherings Act process. Whereas I think community organisations have become a lot less trusting of the formal structures of public participation and because of that, I think, are far more willing to step outside them. Considering the current student protests that we're seeing in campuses around the country, how would you analyse the strategies and activities that have been undertaken by students in order to voice their anger and their disagreement with the status quo in the context of this picture that you've painted of protests aimed at other causes and other reasons around the country? I guess what I'm asking is, to what extent are they similar? To what extent are they different? What are some of the linkages that we can see? I think going back to our understanding of protests as cycles, we see similar cycles unfolding in relation to the student protests as we have in relation to protests more broadly, and particularly community protests. I'd like to start off, first of all, by making a couple of comments about how the state and universities have responded, because I think those, in turn, have shaped student responses because protest cycles unfold in dynamic interaction with a range of different actors, including state actors and university actors. 
And I think universities started out by responding to the, the initial protests quite badly. For one thing, I think that this problem of the increasing unaffordability of higher education has been bubbling up for a very, very long time. Universities like TUT, for instance, have been exploding for many years now. But because many of these student protests have not necessarily been organised on a national basis, and also because they've been taking place, I think, in more working class orientated universities and also in universities that are outside the major metropolitan areas where the media tend to be based. I think that they've been taken less seriously. Now that the protests are moving into what are more clearly middle class spaces, I think that suddenly now there's this huge middle class moral panic that's taking place that the media have picked up on. And university actors are obviously responding quite negatively to all this negative publicity. So I think that's one thing to note. I think that universities haven't practiced the basic principles of preemption and precaution. They should have been aware of the fact that these things were bubbling up in our university spaces a long time ago and acted accordingly. Many of the protests were disruptive, but something that we learned from a protest that had been taking place in the broader you know, South African protest environment is that unfortunately peaceful and non-disruptive protests generally tend to get ignored. And it's only when protest organisations escalate their protests into disruptive forms of protest that people start to sit up and take notice. And this is, a, I, think, I think, a fundamental illness in how the state has responded to protests. So I think that um, universities attempted to over-regulate the protests that were taking place. Now, bear in mind that the Regulation of Gatherings Act actually protects peaceful but disruptive protests. It draws the line at what it would call um, serious disruption. And we don't know yet what constitutes serious disruption. In fact, there's likely to be a legal case in the next couple of weeks that attempts to clarify these very issues. If people are persuaded not to join lectures for argument's sake and decide not to join lectures on the basis of a force of arguments rather than physical force, then that for me would be non-coercive. But if lectures are disrupted and people are actively prevented from going on with lectures against their will, then I think that would constitute serious disruption and would most likely not be protected by the Regulation of Gatherings Act. However, we've seen universities prohibiting, through these wide-ranging interdicts, disruptive and peaceful protests that fall short of serious disruption. That's led to an over-policing not only on the part of private security, but also on the part of the public order police as well. And by the way, I have heard the police themselves grumble about these things. In fact, I heard a senior Metro police official in a meeting that I was involved in uh, speaking very bitterly about the fact that they are forced to become what he described as midwives in these situations. The political and university leaderships are absent, they're missing in action, and that leads to the police increasingly in standoffs with protesters, attempting themselves to mediate when it shouldn't be their role actually to mediate. So there's over-policing that the police themselves are forced into and that they themselves are increasingly resenting because they've got other things to do. But in addition to that we see over-policing by ill-trained private security guards um, and there's a whole culture of machismo that's also going on there, these, you know, beefed up private security guards that have been introduced onto more of our campuses that don't have the first clue, actually, about how to engage. And in fact, there was a Right to Know campaign meeting in Cape Town recently where the industry body 
for the private security sector was represented there and the representative actually admitted that they don't have the skills to undertake quotas policing. So here we have a situation where wide-ranging overboard interdicts have led to over-policing by a public order policing force that in itself is stressed and that itself has issues around policing of protests, as we know, from the past couple of years, including from what happened at Marikana. And layered on top of that, we've now got policing by ill-trained private security guards, ill-trained on their own admission. That is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for absolute disaster. Now, now, layer on top of that, the fact that we've seen on a number of our campuses, the paramilitary policing units also being introduced onto our campuses. A number of us have seen the tactical response unit from the Hilbar police station on our campuses to be recognized by the berets that they wear. Now, the paramilitary policing units are trained for maximum force rather than minimum force. The tactical response team and the National Intervention Unit were the two police units that were responsible for the Marikana massacre. And up to this point, they have yet to be held to account. Now, here we are introducing a policing unit that we know to use maximum force in, in protest policing situations, that we know to be entirely inappropriately equipped for policing, um, um, being introduced onto our campuses to, to, to police protests as well. All of this is a recipe for absolute disaster. And I hope that we don't wake up to the fact that this is a recipe for disaster once our students start being killed. Because all the elements are there for that to happen. I say that with a very heavy heart, but let us say that now rather than us saying it later and then attempting to analyse why those deaths happen. I share your concern and worry about the possible impact that this may have on students and I hope against all hope that we don't have to one day sit and analyse how and why it was that a student was killed in some way on campus. But what about the set of counter-arguments that are out there? So we cannot deny that there is at least some small element of the protesting student movement who have specifically chosen to do violent disruptions, um, who are undertaking criminal acts, who are assaulting police officers, who are damaging property, who are putting the lives of students and staff at risk in various ways, for example, by you know letting fire extinguishers go off in enclosed spaces, by blocking entrances and exits, and if there's some kind of disaster, how would people get out? So there are many who are listening who might ask the question, well, how do we respond to those kinds of arguably violent disruptions that go beyond what might be considered reasonable, non-violent coercion. How do we do that without law enforcement on campus? How would you respond to those critiques? Yeah, I think those are crucially important questions to answer. And we need to bear in mind the fact that these forms of protest that you've, that you've described are not protected either by the Regulation of Gatherings Act or by the Constitution. But we need to ask ourselves as academics, we need to ask ourselves the question, we need to go beyond the surface events, in other words, and we need to ask our questions, what are the deeper trends to work that have made this previously largely peaceful protest descend into the kinds of violence that we're seeing on our campuses at the moment? 
and what do we need to do about it. Well, I think we can learn a lot from uh, social movement studies from other parts of the world, again, in, in terms of how protest cycles unfold and why protests turn violent. And one of the things we, we can also obviously learn a lot from, from the broader South African environment as well and how protests have unfolded there too. And what we learn by looking at both is that violence is rarely ever adopted overnight by social movement organizations. It is usually adopted often as a spontaneous reaction to something that happens. So if a, um, a protest is prohibited and people feel that um, it's been prohibited unjustly, that may inflame and infuriate a crowd and that can, turn, that, that can lead to violence. Police violence um, or excessive use of police force is a major trigger of protest violence. So if a crowd is undertaking a relatively peaceful protest and the police attempt to break up that protest, then the crowd can become enraged. Bear in mind the fact that there are crowd dynamics that need to be understood, that there's a level of de-individuation that often takes place in crowd situations that makes it difficult for rational decisions to kick in about consequences of particular actions. You know, I think that we've seen this, uh, this kind of crowd dynamic unfolding in a number of reactions to um, uh, um, university overregulation of protests, but also to police, excessive use of police force, both by the police and the private security. Mm. And then I think what can happen in those situations is that protest movements can start to divide on the question of violence. The more, in inverted commas, moderate sections of the protest movement may start to become intimidated by this escalating level of conflict and may step aside. And often, you know, it's those people who you want in the protests because it's those people who can often talk the hotheads out of engaging in more radical forms of protest action. So often it's those people who vacate the space. And also that, that, that erodes the mass character of the protest as well. I think what we've seen in relation to the, the, the student movement is that the movement has been strongest at the time when it has exhibited a mass character. So towards the end of last year, when it was engaging in peaceful, non-violent, albeit disruptive forms of protest action, that is when it was at its strongest. But once you start to have this divisions taking place in the student movement, then you start to enter very dangerous territory because also sections of the student movement that have been socialized into violence by the police and private security violence and by state non-responsiveness can say to themselves that we need to use violence in turn because the state itself um, has lost moral authority Violence is the only way to meet violence. We need to meet violence with violence. And we have legitimate grounds in order to do that. So I think that violence is often a very unfortunate, but I think perhaps predictable end point of these kinds of protest cycles that start with, I think, the general closure of democratic space by the authorities. So the argument here is that the violence that we've seen being enacted by some components of the student movement has been provoked by and is a direct result of 
the presence of police on campus and the kind of overly militarized response by university authorities hand in hand with the state. But they might argue that they were forced into bringing that extra security and all of those extra police onto campus because of the threat of violence from students. So we have this chicken and egg kind of situation. And I wonder how we think or debate or negotiate our way out of those two quite polarized perspectives where each side is effectively blaming the other side for having provoked violence and therefore the need for a response in violence. I think that's a very important question, particularly in view of how we seem to be in a downward spiral in our, on, on our campuses at the moment. And I think we really need wise and cool heads in order to deal with this downward spiral. You know, I think this is why it's also important to understand unfolding protests as cycles. Because unless we understand what gave rise to the violence that we're seeing on campus at the moment, that in turn is being used in order to justify these security responses by universities and by the state. Unless we start at that point, work our way back and start at that point, we're not really going to be able to prescribe the most appropriate remedies for dealing with this particular problem and de-escalating the problem. So let me give you a very practical example of in our highly kind of securitized, militarized campus environment at the moment, what I think the officials are doing wrong. It's becoming increasingly obvious that students are finding it extremely difficult to meet on campus. We, on our own university, have had extracurricular activities, including my own book launch, um, my protest book, being prevented on the grounds that these may be flashpoints of protest action. That in itself is doing things wrong, because it's not learning the lessons of what created the conflict in the first place. So if we say that the general closure of democratic space has triggered this kind of chain of cause and effect at the moment, we're not going to be able to de-escalate the problem by closing democratic space even more. So how are students going to be able to debate with one another about strategy and tactics, about the wisdom of using violence, about how to get back to peaceful forms of protest? It's completely and utterly self-defeating to do that. On your own campus, for instance, on Witt's campus, the other day when students were locked out of Solomon Machlangu House, which is generally where students have been meeting in order to debate how to take the, the, the struggle forward. They were locked out. Now, that is going to create conflict. Inevitably, it's going to create conflict. It's going to escalate the protests. And that's exactly what we saw. You know, having watched the video footage from the Daily Box, I obviously wasn't there. So, you know, I can't say with the authority of an eyewitness that this is what happened. But I can, I can see from the Daily Box that, that certain things were unfolding there. So what we saw was a call on the part of the students who had gathered outside on the steps of, of Senate House to be disciplined, to be calm and not throw stones. Joe Siorka was there and he was also attempting to mediate as well. The private security stood firm. The gates remained locked. That inflamed the situation. Then we saw the, ca the caspers coming from the side and we saw the students attempting to block them from going any further. And then on the other side of campus, we saw students starting to throw stones at private security. Now, it is entirely and utterly unsurprising that what happened on that Monday unfolded in the way that it did because of that very initial decision 
to prevent students from being able to get into Solomon Mahangu House in order to have the meeting that they wanted to happen. It's these kinds of things, I think, that need to be reconsidered. Mm. So in other words, unless we're going to take tactical and strategic decisions as universities in favor of opening up space, de-escalating and reducing the level of policing, we're not going to be able to get to the kind of space that we need to find lasting solutions to these problems. I mean, I agree with, with your argument, and it does make a lot of sense, but it's also worth pointing out that on a different day, not the Monday in question, when students were in Solomon Maklangu House meeting and debating and deliberating, the conclusion that they came to was that it was time to shut down, and they went from office to office pulling staff members. Mm-hmm politely requesting with fire extinguishers mm. on hand that they vacate. So it can go both ways. So we really are stuck in this catch-22. What advice would you give for de-escalating? So I take your point. It's a very important point about making sure that there are spaces for students to meet and have democratic dialogues. Mm. Any other advice about what kinds of de-escalation strategies management should be considering right now instead of bringing more and more and more and more Nialas and Caspers? and police and rubber bullets and tear gas onto our campuses. Sure. No, it can certainly go both ways. And let's bear in mind that the responsibility to de-escalate is not just simply the authorities, it's also the protesters as well. And here we need to have some calling out on the part of the student activists, of those sections of the movement who are engaging in violent and coercive acts. So if, for instance, the shutdown, is being enforced with fire extinguishers and in ways that other students and staff don't feel happy with, then I think that that strategy needs to be reconsidered. One of the arguments that has been made is that the university space is the only space that students actually control. And because of that, it's the only way to make their voices heard. And if something works, then why set it aside, because otherwise you're you're setting aside the only weapon that you've got in which to make your voice heard. But I think we also need to bear in mind as well that if the students themselves are being divided and if they themselves are unable to bring both parents and lecturers on board in order to build the mass character of the movement, then there's something wrong with that particular strategy and other ways need to be found of exerting pressure. One of the things that is moving, that I think is a positive development in all of this, is that I I, I see Vice-Chancellors starting to sit up and take notice a lot more and to say that they have a responsibility to put pressure on government too. So in other words, they need to act as a united force and side actually with the students because ultimately the students are raising a just cause. And I think it's entirely inappropriate for us to have such polarized situations on campus when in terms of the bigger picture, the staff, the students, the parents, and the vice chancellor should be at one in their call for free education. And let's just kind of rise above, you know, all these campus level conflicts that are taking place and recognize that particular bigger picture. And I think if we recognize the bigger picture and start opening up those spaces for those four major constituencies to come together in order to develop a united front, then we've got a truly mass movement that can really be a force that is not only reckoned with, 
but that has to be listened to and taken seriously. And should we succeed in doing that? And I really hope we do. And I know many listeners and many of us are working towards that in one way or another. Do you think the government will listen or will they perceive it and universities in particular as a threat on its legitimacy and power? Okay, look, I think we need to recognize the fact that this is actually, in spite of how gloomy and how much doom I think we all feel and how difficult I think it is for all of us to get up in the morning and to deal with this thing that's facing us, not only on our campuses, but in broader society. I think we, we need to recognize certain positive things. As a result of these struggles that are taking place, not only on our campuses, but more broadly as well, things are shifting, things are moving, some positive things are happening. There are major divisions in the ANC at the moment, right up to top leadership level, about our president who himself is missing in action. You know, if our own president is missing in action, you know, he sets the, he sets the, <laughs> the example <laughs> for, for everyone else further down the food chain who are in positions of authority. Um, but I think increasingly people even within the ruling party are starting to recognize that we are not on a, a sustainable trajectory. I think there's more and more investigative journalism that's coming out that's showing how deeply corrupt our state has become under our current president. So I think that, you know, that investigative journalism needs to be celebrated. So I think there's a range of things that are shifting at the moment. The sterling work that's been done by the public protector, I think that people are raising their voices. They realise the fact that they need to be heard and that things can change. And I think that if we recognise the fluid nature of the political trajectory that we're in, I think we can also recognise the fact that there are political opportunities as well as much as there are threats. Even when we take the threats, we must recognise the fact that the security cluster is itself a divided house. We haven't seen yet, um, and I hope we don't see, the mass deployment of soldiers on campus, for instance. You know, I, I think that even the security cluster recognises the fact that there's democratic limits on their ability to shoot and kill people. I think that this is one of the positive things, ironically enough, that's come out of the Marikana massacre. I think that there has been major shifts in the political terrain. We've seen the rise of the EFF. We've seen a host of political shifts taking place. Um, various municipalities have fallen to the opposition party. I think that this has been a slap in the face for the ruling party. So I think, you know, these shifts are an indication of the fact that, that potentially things can change and that the political space is wide open. And a lot of these shifts themselves, I think, have been precipitated by the kind of clampdowns that we've seen on democratic space that, that resulted in the Marikana massacre. So I, for one, and many people don't agree with me, but I, for one, don't believe that there are likely to be any more Marikana massacres. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. And the reason why is the political costs are simply too high. They've been too high, and we've seen the impact on how they've restructured the political space since the massacre. Taking all of these things into account, I think that there's been no better time than now to actually push for free education. And I, in fact, am, am a, an advocate, not just for free education for the poor but um, and the missing middle, but for free education for all. Because I believe that it's the only way that we can actually protect the publicness of our universities. I think if we have free education for the poor and the missing middle only, I think that eventually what will happen is given the fragility 
of the user pays model towards you know, funding universities that will inevitably result from that. The kind of income stream that comes from the upper middle class will probably go to private universities. And what we'll then probably see is a balkanization of the higher education space, where we see, like in relation to so many of our public services, a parallel public and private set of service providers. And I think that that will be disastrous for our ability to be able to build common spaces for identity formation. Because then, like we have in the media space, for instance, we, we increasingly have a society that's unable to see itself and to have the kind of pressing conversations that we need to as a nation because we have such a balkanized media space. We have the erosion of common viewing and listening space of public service television, for instance, mm-hmm. is being eroded all the time. And I think something similar is happening in relation to our educational spaces as well. People who can afford to buy themselves out of public education are doing so. And this is my fear about what will happen if we focus on free education for the poor and the missing middle only. That's, that's, that's I think, another debate mm. um, for us to have. But I think there has never been a better time for us politically than to have this debate now. Mm. And I think in all of this tumultuous time that we're experiencing, That is, I think, a a positive factor in all of this that we need to keep top of mind. Because if we don't, we may just all go mad. (laughs) Well, I'm very encouraged by your prediction that there will not be another Marikana from your mouth to uh, whoever's up there's ears. One last question. Should police leave campus? And if so, how and what will be required to maintain some kind of peace from all sides, from management, from student leaders, from protesting students, from non-protesting students. If the police aren't there, will things get better? Or or what are some of the other scenarios that you think would play out? Mm, Yeah, it's a very difficult question. I think there needs to be a cessation of hostilities combined with, and this will go down like a ton of bricks in some circles, but I think combined with a calling out and a holding to account of people, of individuals who have been responsible for violent incidents. And I think that unless and until we adopt a targeted approach to dealing with the problem, then we're going to have a situation where on a blanket basis, you know, the police and the private security will remain, which is not something that, that, that we obviously want to see happening. So I think that there needs to be a mediation service that happens, that comes in. I think that there is already an attempt to have that happening. I think that there need to be a series of undertakings, both by the student movement and also by the authorities, the universities and the police, that uh, there will be an adherence to the terms of that uh, ceasefire, if you could put it like that. And then I think that a common set of demands need to be developed that then are taken forward to the higher education ministry and possibly, more importantly, the Ministry of Finance, who ultimately holds the key to all of this. So I think that mediation at the moment is central to all of this, but allowing the student movement opportunities to be able to meet in order to decide what their approach would be and what their bottom line is in relation to mediation and who actually should be the most appropriate leaders to raise those issues, I think is something that needs to be subject to democratic debate. Because if you don't have democratic debate itself uh, within the student movement, that too 
can lead to regressive elements dominating the space, the reactionary elements, the homophobes, um, you know, the sexists, the racists, the anti-Semites, the people who we've seen coming out and professing to um, represent the voice of the student movement, I think often in highly, highly problematic ways. We're not going to be able to get the kind of maturity, and that's not, not to say that that characterizes all student leaders. And obviously, it's difficult to talk about student leaders. It's a bit of a contradiction in terms, because the student, the, the movement has, has deliberately, and I think to a certain extent for good reasons, resisted becoming a formalized, organized formation. But perhaps there are arguments to make for things to now escalate beyond the movement being a movement and for it to start organizing itself. And one of the arguments that can be made in support of that particular approach is that leaders can be elect elected and duly held to account for their actions. Because unless and until we have accountability for actions on the part of activists, the movement itself isn't going to be able to move forward. It's important to remember that all citizens have the right to protest. This is a right protected by the Constitution. How police respond to various forms of protest is something that is also governed by the law. In this moment, when universities around South Africa are seeing heavy police presence, it's important to put the student protests that are happening into the bigger picture of what protest means for disaffected and marginalized groups. I hope that in the days and weeks that lie ahead, we can find ways of de-escalating the situation on our campuses and finding new alternative routes to move forward towards the goal of free public education peacefully. My name is Eva. I'm studying architecture. I'm very uncomfortable because I don't know when violence would break out. And I don't know when I'd be caught up in that violence, you know. I feel like sometimes I'm risking my life to come to school because apparently a lot of students get hurt and injured, but they're not even part of the protest, you see. So I feel really uncomfortable and uneasy when they're around. Um, before it starts, I leave. That's what I usually do. Or I just don't come to school at all. But I see all the violence from my balcony across the street. Yeah, it's horrible. I think there was one time the policemen threw tear gas at our building because the protest kind of got to that point. You know, I remember it was a Monday and the police brought all the students protesting on the streets. So, you know, we kind of got affected by the tear gas and everything else. My name is Matthew and I'm studying physics first year. Yeah, so the protests for me are not really ideal because I'm trying to get my stuff done. But I do agree that free education would be a good thing and stuff, but I feel as if the protests have kind of taken another direction now and it's become more of a riot kind of a thing. And the police presence on campus makes me feel way more comfortable, admittedly. Like, I don't want to be walking around with rocks flying and no police, so that definitely makes me feel way more comfortable. The fact that this morning when I arrived and they checked my car, like, it made me feel safe, like no one's bringing bombs on campus and stuff. And, yeah, just when the, the big riots and stuff break out, like, in front of the main hall there, and they just kind of, like, sort it out so that I can get through and go home. I think there's some very, like, extremist kind of supporters of the whole thing. 
and also the fact that some of the people that were actually taking part were not actually students so they don't really have like as much respect for the grounds as what a student should so i think that could have played a role the academic citizen is a podcast sponsored by asau the academic staff association of wits university asau is the union representing the interests of academic staff at wits for more information visit www.asau.org.za the academic citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen@gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungi Lembenyane. Thanks to Jane Duncan, Eva, Marumo and Matthew for their time. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.